question. Uh, we are going to continue our tradition. Uh, we are going to sing our psalm now and sing it again at the end of the sermon. Uh, you can go ahead to the, go ahead to the next slide. Uh, this one is Psalm 29 to the tune of What a Friend We Have in Jesus. <laughs> Tell of God, you sons of heaven. Tell his glory and his might. Offer him the glory to him. Come in garments pure and bright. Thank you again, Luke. I'm just going to keep saying it. I love doing that. It is so cool singing these psalms and just what a powerful way to come before this great God that we serve. I do wonder, we've been talking in practical terms in the morning, and though this is, the psalms are primarily theological and I do want to ask a practical question. The question is, is there anything that you do to put yourself in a state of worship? Do you have a primer for your worship? Or, and another question that I could ask is, do you ever not feel worshipful? Where you... You come into the building and you don't feel like singing. Maybe the song doesn't resonate with your emotional state. This is just not where I am in my mind. It's not here. I've been there. Times, there are times where I wonder, why, why am I not singing? And of course, I'm always singing, but I mean, why am I not singing when I'm by myself in the car? Why am I, what is it that drives worship? What motivates us? What moves us to worshiping God? I think that that's uh, an important question to ask. 
what moves you? And there are good catalysts for worship. And I think we see one of these in Psalm 29. We just sang it. We're going to look over it tonight. But our, our worship should be more than just duty. If it is, isn't that vain in the sight of God? If all it is is a musical melody... And the melody is not the same as the melody of our heart, which God is looking at, right? We sing the psalm, the, the verse we all know so well, Ephesians 5, 19, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. If the heart is not singing the same tune as the lips, what does God think of that? And... Is there something that we can do to be moved into a position of greater worship? Think about a church. How can we have more meaningful worship? How can we have louder worship? How do you get the people to sing more loudly? How do you get the hearts to be more connected with the songs? Let's get some ideas from Psalm 29. Psalm 29, beginning in verse 1, he says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Where does it start? Where does good worship start? This is... This is a question that so many ask, and there are churches and organizations that they spend millions of dollars a year on the question. And they are asking the wrong question. They're asking, what do the people want? They're asking, how can we replicate in a religious way what people like and are doing out in the secular world? How can we mimic that? How can we capitalize on the things that people are already doing? How can we take the desires of the people, wherever they are, and meet them and accommodate them? And the question is, what do people want? Comes across, and what kind of music do you like? What kinds of songs do you like? What's your favorite song? Which one connects the most with you? And what can we do about that? It's the wrong question. I look all through the Bible. I look at the Psalms. And where is it that they were directing their attention? Where were they looking? What were they most concerned with? Ascribe to the Lord. Right? Isn't that what he says three times in a row here? Ascribe to the Lord. Oh, and by the way, heavenly beings is not, this is not a, a translation. This is more of an interpretation. The word that he uses is sons of the mighty. Sons of God. Sons of Elohim. And some places in the Old Testament, sons of God refers to the angels. When Satan appeared before God with the other sons of God in the book of Job, 
those were angels. And some places sons of God means angels, and some places sons of God means people. So it doesn't have to be talking about heavenly hosts here, but whether it's talking about angels or whether it's talking about men, we're being called to it. Whatever he, whether he's addressing angels or men, he's saying, are you made by the living God? Are you under the living God? And yes, indeed, all of us are. And so what he says is, ascribe to the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. His name is due glory. And to ascribe is to attribute to or to give to. This is why he says it's the glory due his name. There's a, there's a, the way that we view our God, the way that we view Almighty God, the one true and living God who made the world and everything in it, who organizes times and places and seasons, and who has orchestrated all of history by his sovereign hand, he's the one to whom we should be ascribing and attributing and giving glory and strength. And it's the glory that is due his name. His name has great might. And his name is glorious, and it is due a certain way of looking at it. We should be esteeming him and holding him up in a very certain way. And worship is totally and completely about him. You and I, we do benefit from it, don't we? I get up here after every one of those psalms. I'm, I'm standing back there. I have the benefit of having been studied, studying the psalm, and then I get to sing it. And, and I know that the psalm is fresh for y'all. And I get up here and I, I just, I'm moved by it. Oftentimes it makes the hair on my arms stand up as we're singing these great songs to our great God. And I'm filled up by it. It moves me. And I do gain from it. There is secondary effects that I receive. I'm filled by worship. Giving unto God the glory due his name, it fills me. And I know that it fills you. And it fills me not so I can do it alone, but when I'm with a whole bunch of people in a building and we're all doing it together, the sound of one voice going up in harmony, that fills me in an even more powerful way. So I'm not saying we don't gain from it. We absolutely do, but these things are secondary. And the greatest we can ever gain from worship is when we have the primary thing in order. And the primary thing is, what is due God? When I come to this place, am I thinking in these terms? When I step into the house of God, and I know it's not the building, we're the household of God. The church is the household of God. When I step into the house of God is my thought process, I'm coming to bring something to my creator is that my first thought? Is my first thought, what am I going to get out of this? I know I'm going to get something out of it. I do every time. But I get so much more out of it when my first thought is, what can I give to my great God? He's deserving of it. I just picture in my mind a God who can take millions of gallons of water and just move them apart for people to walk across on dry land. 
I picture my God who can take a dead man rotting away in the grave and with a word of his power, make him to come to life and stand up and walk again. I picture that God. When I'm coming here, the first and foremost thought is, what can I bring to God? What can I give to God? What should I attribute to God? I will attribute to him the glory and the strength that is due his name. And the thing that I want you to see here is that good worship comes on the heels of good theology. Good worship. How can we make worship better? Good worship comes on the heels of good theology. That's why you really can't get better worship than literally singing a psalm. The psalms are the purest theology because they were written entirely by the Holy Spirit of God. Good worship comes on the heels of good theology. And the reason I say that, and I imagine that you all have, have seen it or made this connection here just based on what I've shown you, but notice how he says, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord. These are, these are, this means prior to ascribing or attributing, me saying, so I, there's a point that I've come to where I say, God is these things. God is particularly the things that we're um, ascribing is glory and strength. To, in order to do that, forethought has gone into this. Something has happened prior to this point where I see God as glorious. Even uh, Tim and I were just talking a second ago about the Grand Canyon. And you know, I've never been there, but I've, I know many have. And they've said that when you're there, it is just an image of glory. You see it and it's glory. Well, God is far more glorious than the Grand Canyon. God made the Grand Canyon. And when we get God in our minds in these ways, then we, we say God's glorious, and we see him in that way. When we see God move in the world and in the lives of men and women, and we see the things that he does, and we see how he works in ways that we could never imagine, and we see his ability to make something out of nothing, we see his ability to move objects that we couldn't fathom moving, then we ascribe to God's strength. And what is it that comes on the heels of that? Having those ideas, well, he says, this is what happens. Worship. Worship comes on the heels of good theology. It is, it is cheap theology that produces a K-Love three-chord boy band song about how God is proud of me. Am I right? That's cheap theology. I, look, I, I listen to those lyrics. I pay attention to them so much of the time. Sometimes the theology is flat out wrong. Sometimes it's just cheap. How much have you really thought about God that that's what you came up with? Uh, but good theology brings good worship. And there was, there was a man, I, I don't know if you've heard the story before, but Horatio Spafford, does that name ring a bell for anyone? <laughs> Horatio Spafford, strong name. Somewhere in the 1870 range, uh, this man lost his fortune, a wealthy man, 
lost his fortune in the 1871 Chicago fires. Soon after that, he lost his only son, four years old, to uh, scarlet fever. And in the wake of this great tragedy in his family, he decided that it was time for him and his family to go on a vacation. And so he sent his wife and his daughters, he had four of them, out into the ocean ahead of him. And he had a couple of things he needed to attend to before joining them across the pond. He sent them out. And on their journey, they encountered a major ocean storm and 200 passengers on that ship died, four of whom were his daughters. You think about a terrible tragedy. And his wife sent words to him from across the sea about what had happened. She, he said, I'll come there and I'll, I'll meet you. And on the journey, the captain of the ship showed him the spot where his daughters had met their demise. And in that moment, as he sat there on the boat, he wrote, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. How does a guy, how does a guy lose all his fortune, lose all five of his children, and then write a, a lyric like that that became one of the most famous Christian songs the world has ever sung? He had a good theology. He knew the God who was still above all of these things. He knew everything that was still ahead of him. He knew the great hope that exists for those in Christ. There are hardships and trials, and we will encounter many hard things in this life. We will. And you can have good, great worship in sorrow and great worship in joy. The psalmists are a testament to it. It's great and powerful worship from great and powerful men of God who saw God rightly. Oftentimes, they were in great distress. Good worship comes on the heels of good theology. And so, I just want to run through very briefly this psalm to see one aspect of the greatness and the might of God. Have you ever thought about what God's voice would sound like if he spoke to you? I don't know if this is hyperbole. Sometimes I think we're too quick to say that. And I wonder if there are elements of it that are maybe more true than what we would let on. But this psalmist does say something about the voice of God. And it is a mighty voice. You'll notice a repetition of the phrase, the voice of the Lord. Verse 3, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The, the God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. Oops. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord... Just do that part. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. 
the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. So what's he saying is the voice of the Lord? It's thunder. This is a storm. He's saying this is the voice of the Lord. It's thunder, and there's lightning, and he's over the waters. It's a big ocean storm. You probably, I don't care how many times I've been able to witness it, but when there's a terrible thunderstorm going on outside, I want to go outside and stand on the front porch for as long as possible and watch it. And back in Oklahoma, if a tornado's coming our way, people just want to stand outside and watch it until, it, until it's right there. There's something to it. I, I'm telling you, there's something to it. And I think it just has to do with having an awesome experience. There's a great power that is far beyond our control. And we're sheltered under something. We feel safe to a degree, and we think, I can just behold this. I can just look on this. He's saying this is, this is God. This is what God's power is like. And it's interesting. He uses you know, a couple of uh, parameters. He says the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. So if you were, if you were imagining kind of the, the coast and you know, the Mediterranean is over here and you had the Sea of Galilee up here and the Jordan River and the Dead Sea down here, um, this up here is where, is that showing up up there? Okay. Up there at the top, that's where Lebanon and Syrian are. It's on the far north. It's just outside of the boundaries of the promised land to the very north. And then he says, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. And Kadesh is all the way down here. And the idea there is that God is, the picture that he's giving is that the rain and the voice of God is completely covering over the totality of his people. God is over them completely and totally. Are you in the family of God? Are you a part of the children of God? You're not outside of that range. You're, you're a part of it. And he's, he's just giving this picture of God being completely above all of it. Luke and I were commenting on one of the final things that he says about the voice of the Lord. And this one makes your eyes kind of go wide. The voice of the Lord, which, by the way, I, I didn't hear. How did Matthew Basford say it? He skipped right over this one. This one would have, would have been the coolest one. Maybe we need to bring it in. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. Can you imagine that? And, by the way, I, I did just a slight bit of reading, and there are testimonies of shepherds that go back millennia, say, during major storms, Shepherds would go out and get all of their flocks together so that those that had, you know, those that were pregnant would not bear their young in the midst of a storm. And sometimes the shepherds, after major storms, would have to go out and look on the mountains for the young that had been cast 
by terror uh, through the night. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. How powerful is God's voice? What's the result here? What does he say is the end result for those who've looked on God and they've seen him in this way? He's not a little God. He's so much bigger than we can fathom. He's so much mightier than we give him credit. He has power over anything, authority over everything. And he's good. This is our God. And the result is, he says, the result is that in his temple, all cry glory. Just one word. That's what they see. That's a, that's a powerful worship scene. You, I tell you, you want to get a place where all of the people, you know, we want Oldham Lane, where it's just this house where the voice is lift. I mean, where the roof is almost blown off of the building. Deep in the theology. Deep in the perspective and the mindset that we have of God and how great he is and how glorious he is. He is an awesome God, and we must worship him with all of our hearts. So I love the Psalms because this is where they're always bringing us. They're always bringing us back to worship in, in whatever the circumstance is. This one I like because it's just saying, hey, here's kind of a, an exhibit of God's awesomeness, and it should bring you to say God's glorious. Some of them is people saying, I'm on the run. I'm, I'm being pursued. I might die. I've lost everything. I'm rejected by my kinsmen. And then they worship God. But remember, good worship always comes on the heels of good theology. Good thinking brings about good singing. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. And the result of a people who know this and a people who attribute these things to God, the result is, he says, may the Lord give strength. See, we say, God, you are strong. What will God in turn do for us when we see him this way and we give him the glory and the praise due his name? In turn, he gives us strength. In turn, we are made strong. And then he says, may the Lord bless his people with peace. You want to sleep well at night. Imagine as you're, as you're going to sleep, say you've got all, some, a big problem, something that has you dreading tomorrow, something that has you fearful for tomorrow. Maybe there's an uncertainty, something that you just, God sees around the bend, you have no idea. What you do is go picture how big God is, and not just how big he is, but picture how good he is. Recall to memory all of the things that God through the Bible has done and picture those things as you're talking to him. Say, God, you're the one that could part the Red Sea. And Israel was backed up with an army behind them and a sea in front of them and you let them go through on dry ground and then you swallowed the enemy behind them. That's God. Picture him in those terms. He made the world in six days. How big is he? Picture that and bring it to mind and keep thinking about it. And then when you have an issue or there's something you're fearful about or something that scares you, just 
picture the God who can't be stopped by anything and bring it before his throne. And then go to sleep in peace knowing he has your best in mind. It's not always what we think, but he has our best in mind. So with that, Luke is going to lead us and we're going to stand and we're going to sing that psalm again. So let's sing out. In fact, can I just say, can we just expressly, every one of us, try to sing as loud as we possibly can? We, we try it. Challenge accepted. Let's stand and let's sing together. <laughs> <laughs> Tell of God you sons of If there's anything that um, you have on your heart or you're struggling with um, during this next song, Jim's going to lead here in just a second. You can come forward. You can find a minister, find an elder. Come find us afterward. We would love to pray for you. Uh, if you have any need, you may come forward at this time as we continue to stand and continue to sing.